making a movie physically and mentally destroys you. You know, it just, it just does. It becomes such a labor of love that sometimes we neglect to look at it as a business. People lock into this idea that there is a correct way to do things. There's not, there's a million ways to do it. Video has become the most effective way to get people to do something that it is you want them to do. It's time for filmmakers to get real with Jeffrey Michael Bays and Forrest Day Jr. I'm having a lot of trouble today because uh, I ran out of tea. I ran out of the, the brand of tea that I usually drink. And now I'm, I'm, I'm drinking this kind of uh, stale tea that has expired. Oh my first world problems. Oh so my just, I, are you okay, Jeffrey? I don't I don't know if I can do the show. I need a tissue to wipe away the tear from my eye because your tea is stale. This is terrible. No, it, oh my it, god. It, it's like it's like uh expires in 2017. So uh, you, you shouldn't have to be going through this right now. This is this, this is, is horrific. Rough. Yeah. This is rough. Oh my god. So uh how's your gaffer tape show coming along? I'm I'm working on uh getting them on the show. Um but uh, it, it's it's turning out to be a little tougher than I thought. But we'll have them on and we'll talk about the importance of gaffer tape. Of course, you probably already know the importance of it. But who else has ever interviewed someone from a gaffer tape company? Nobody. Us. Nobody. We're, we're Nobody. trailblazers. Ever. You and I are trailblazers. You never know what you're going to learn. We're going to have them on and you're going to learn about gaffer tape. Speaking of which, today we're talking about stock footage. Now, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another one of those kind of topics that uh, normally you don't think about. No. This is one of the things that James uh, is going to be talking about today. Uh, our guest today is James Forsher, uh, the author of Stock Footage and Everything Under the Sun. Um, is that it, it, stock footage is not just for the movie itself, but it's for your um, art department to do research. And, and it's not just footage per se uh it could be pictures of posters and then you add moves to them say you're doing a documentary this is stuff i didn't think about until i read the book and uh it's fascinating and on the flip side of it if you have stock footage that you might not know you have laying around the house you might be able to make some money off of it and what is stock footage laying around the house your home movies yeah so your home movies could be uh, more valuable financially to you than you might think. So, so let's take a break and uh, we'll be we'll be right back with James Forsher, author of Stock Footage and Everything Under the Sun. That's one thing Alfred Hitchcock was really good at, creating suspense with a camera. For the last couple of years, I've been teaching Hitchcock suspense techniques at festivals like Buffalo, St. Louis, Palm Springs, Los Angeles. Filmmakers are learning easy tricks for building suspense that are so easy to implement. Now there's a way for you to get access in my new book, Suspense with a Camera. It's available in bookstores now. And don't miss our free docuseries on YouTube called Hitch 20.
So on the show today, we're talking about stock footage, where you can find it, why you should find it, and maybe you can make some money off the footage you have laying around the house. So it's time to dig through your closets for us. You mm-hmm. never know what might be back there. Old videotapes. Sneakers. Uh, <laughs> Sneakers. Okay. Well, that's kind you of footage. Yeah, sure. Oh, that's footwear. Yeah. Sorry. I get them confused okay. all the time. James Forsher is our guest now. He has nearly 40 years of experience producing, writing, and directing documentaries and TV commercials. And his productions have aired on Discovery Channel, PBS, A&E, Cinemax, and the Movie Channel. And he's also the author of Stock Footage and Everything Under the Sun, Using Archival Material to Make Your Good Film Great. That's a long title. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Welcome to the show, James. It's great to join you. All right, let's let's talk about a little bit about who you are, because you have a, a huge collection of stock footage or archival footage of your own. So let's talk about what that is and how it's used in films. Sure. Uh, well, over the last way too many years, uh, I collected several thousand film elements, video elements, and print elements. Uh, and it just comes really from starting to do uh, documentaries back in the mid-1970s. Um, I discovered in my very first documentary that um, stock footage not only helped you tell a, a much better story, but it was also much more affordable than just trying to shoot everything uh, and uh, make that work. Mm-hmm. And, and what is stock footage for people who may not know? Stock footage is um, material, film, video uh, that was shot um, as little as five seconds ago. And um, as much as 120 years ago. So anything that's in the camera uh, that is past tense, which is pretty much everything. So if you take a picture now, it could be considered stock or archival footage. Yeah, you know, for example, uh, Premiere has a uh, stock footage application where uh, Adobe allows you to upload whatever you have, uh, put some keywords and make some money from it. Uh, So you can go shoot a sunset uh, this evening post it tonight, and then tomorrow morning make uh, $20, $30, $50, whatever, you know, people pay for it. Huh. Well, that that's pretty darn cool. Now, I've seen it used, obviously, uh, in some independent films, and, and personally, I believe it brings them up a notch. Sometimes the stock footage does stand out because it's so much better than some of the indie films I've seen. But right. um, how how is it used? Can it only be used in documentaries or, you know, we when I think of it, I think of documentaries. But when I looked at your book... I realize there's so many other uses and so many other sources. Can you talk about some of uh, the uses and some of the sources? Yeah, it, it, the uses are pretty much a, um, every type of entertainment medium uses stock material. Feature films, TV shows, TV shows that are current, TV shows that are based in you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago, uh, documentaries, commercials, uh, you name it. I mean, it's uh, you know web uh, webisodes. So why? Why is it so popular? Um, Well, we're in a business of telling stories. And so when you're telling stories, you want to tell the best and most interesting story possible. So, for example, if you interview someone uh, and he talks about uh, growing up in Hollywood in the 1950s or 1960s, yeah, you can sit and watch him for two minutes talk or you could sit there and 
get material that shows what his life was like in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s and intercut it. And suddenly your audience won't go to sleep. And, and it gives them something to look look at while you're talking about it. And sometimes I've noticed that sometimes even the stock footage is very generic. Uh, you know, they might be talking about uh, Babe Ruth, for instance, and might just show baseball footage. And I use that as an example. But it really does doll it up a little bit. But uh, looking at your book, what I was surprised was the fact that you can use posters. And I think of it as uh, old newsreels as stock footage, but um, the fact that it's, you know, five seconds ago, you could film something and and sell it online. And the fact that there are posters and um, other sources, um, where do people, if somebody's making a film, where would you begin Uh, aside from getting your book, which is is a great choice? um, Where do you begin to find stock footage for your film? Well, the process I, I go through in, in the uh, stock footage book is um, kind of a, a journey. So the first step of a journey is knowing where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to have an idea of the story you want to tell, and then you research it. You just go through the story and find out all the different elements and bits and pieces. So, you know, if uh, you're talking to, you know, say, a fiction story. Uh, and you're talking about someone who grew up in L.A. in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, find footage of the year 2000. You may not even use that footage uh, in the final film, but it will give your art director a lot of information of how to dress sets, um, cars to use, uh, fashions. And so pretty much I mean, every art director, every uh, set designer is using stock material to design the world that your story takes place in. Mm-hmm. No, I, it's in outer space and that's that's another story <laughs> yeah like lost in space although some of that stuff is pretty dated too like when you watch it you're like yeah that's a kind of some pop culture in there oh yeah when i think of pop culture you know i think of the netflix original show stranger things right uh, not that they used a lot of stock footage in that but i would imagine uh, as you were speaking uh, a few moments ago i'm thinking oh that must have been how they researched it through stock footage because when you watch that show, it's very 80s. It's more 80s than the 80s were. Exactly. Having lived through the That's 80s. Where, you know, it's it's not just appearing on the screen. It's giving you the information you need to make your show authentic or feel authentic. Uh, you mentioned private collections in your book. How would someone, how do you even begin with that? Like finding a private collection? Yeah, there's, uh, there's all types of... Uh, collections out there in their government collections. There are um, private, you know, large archives like Getty and Corbis, which are the, the biggest. Uh, but then there's little collections like, you know, some strange guy living in Iowa who collected uh, footage of farms, you know, whatever. And um, if you happen to need Midwest farm footage from the 60s, um, you're going to search out and find this strange guy who's got this footage. Um, so, you know, these Collections exist all over the place, and it's just a question of researching it. You know, naturally, you start with Google. Uh, there's reference books, um, and um, if you have any budget at all, um, there are professional, what they call clip clearance uh, people out there, who um, who know this world, and they, you know, what you're buying from them is their experience. So there's no one single clearinghouse. You you just got to kind of think outside the box and. Yeah, I mean, you know, really, yeah, if you want to be lazy about it, you just 
call up a researcher at National Archives and say, oh, you know, send me what you got, and they'll send you some stuff from the Universal News Collection or some government films, and good enough. Mm-hmm. But if you're a good enough type of producer uh, and you really are looking for the best film possible to make, you, you'll spend a little time really finding the details. Um, so over the years, I've, I've been producing for 40 years, uh, I really spent a good two to three months researching and digging because I knew if I could find a different type of story that hadn't been told, mm-hmm. an image that hadn't been seen, it makes the show that much more interesting. Instead of watching the show and going, oh, God, I've seen that you know, footage of uh, Martin Luther King walking down the street and the sign, we shall overcome a thousand times. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use that same National Archives scene like everybody else. You can find different shots. It doesn't cost that much more. And suddenly your film really kind of pops out. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cost, what can people expect? to spend on uh, footage for their film? Um, uh, from very little to an incredible amount. So what I mean by that is if you um, are just happy with your universal newsreel type of footage establishing years um, and you, you pay the researcher, they find the footage that may cost you 500 for the day. And then that footage is transferred to the format that you're editing with. And that may be thousand bucks and then you've got it. So, you know, that's one way to do it. Um, it the other extreme is uh, I just finished a, a show on the um, formation of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And it took me uh, three months through my clip clearance person who had a personal relationship with Paramount and CBS. And over three months to get them to approve a one minute clip. And they quoted me $20,000 for one minute from the 1960 series. Oh, my God. From the TV show? Yeah, and that doesn't include talent, and that's probably another ten thousand when you throw in all the talent costs. Wow! So, um, you know, what you discover when you do this is some shows are not affordable. You know, a, that that thirty thousand dollars for that minute would have been my entire uh, producer's profit if I had been lucky enough to make a Netflix sale in the U.S. For people who are making stock footage, what are the legalities? I know you're not a lawyer, but um, yeah. say let's use Star Trek. For instance, say, say you uh, take a stock footage of a little kid playing with uh, a model of the USS Enterprise, which is, I don't know if that's a copyrighted image or not. Can you use that? Uh, well, you shouldn't. And, and this is the way I, I like to look at it. Um, if there's not a lot of money to be made, nobody's going to sue you. If your show happens to do well and gets a lot of exposure... Uh, you will get the phone call, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what type of protections you say you can use. And for, so for example, a lot of uh, documentary filmmakers say, oh, it's fair use. I can uh-huh. use that. It's fair use. Well, that's a lot of BS, and I'll explain you why. Fair use has a, a, a definite legal um, permission to use material. So that's true. Uh, every time you watch the news, news falls under fair use because it's in the public good. But when you've got a feature film that's being shown at movie theaters and you're making money and the studio's making money, it's kind of hard to defend yourself under fair use. So you are going to get the phone call because you're exploiting somebody else's property. Mm-hmm. And conversely, if you know you filmmakers out there, if you make something and another filmmaker uses it and says, oh, that's fair use, you're not going to be happy. So um, you got to just kind of be careful, look at what you're using and ask yourself, you know, if, if there's a chance I'll make any money from this, 
uh, what do I have to do? And so going back to your original example of holding a toy of the Star Trek Enterprise, um, Star Trek is Paramount's largest franchise. They protect every bit and piece of it um, wherever they can. Mm -hmm. They have dozens and dozens and dozens of attorneys. So if you use it in any way to exploit it, you're going to get a phone call and they will shut you down, you know, if uh, they feel like it. So the lesson here is be careful what you do make yeah, uh, for whatever the Latin expression is, but yeah. When people use um, short films and, and feature films uh, and you you just mentioned, you know, using Star Trek, but what if it's a short indie film, for instance, and you like the shot in that film, can that be used as stock footage if you sure. contacted the person and contact the filmmaker and say, I like that uh, sunset or sunrise shot you had and how much will you charge? And everything's negotiable. So mm -hmm. they'll say, how about 5,000 a minute? And you'll say, how about 500 a minute? And then you'll find <laughs> that happy sweet spot. Yeah. 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 And, and we'll, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, I'll give you credit. And, and yeah, I, I like money more than, than no, credit. I don't want to the money. And I, I go through a whole chapter of how to negotiate. I mean, negotiating is, is a, kind of worth a chapter in itself because there's yeah. no way to do it, but there are certain rules you want to follow to make sure you don't get robbed. The book is called Stock Footage and Everything Under the Sun. If you want to just give us an overview of the book so people know what, uh, you know, if they don't have the book in their hand. Sure. They... Well, you know, really simply, the uh, the first part of the book goes into the, the multitude of archival material available to you. So this is, you know, feature films, TV shows, shorts, uh, cartoons, animation. It also covers like still photography, graphics, music. Um, so there's probably over 20 different archival material specific sources that filmmakers commonly use. So that's part one. Next thing I do is talk about how to find it, where to find it. Then I talk about how to negotiate for it. And then I talk about the legal stuff. And, and the legal stuff is sometimes, the probably all the time, the most important stuff, but the most forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of filmmakers don't want to deal with it. And a lot of filmmakers, you know, I'm a filmmaker, I know. I mean, you, you have a lot of stuff going on making your film. And um, oftentimes the decisions to use uh, footage is in post-production towards the end of your cut. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you may have a delivery date. And so suddenly you're in a rush. You've spent all your money. And you're desperate. And uh, I used to run a film archive for about 20 years. And so I'm used to working with filmmakers who all called me up with the same uh, desperate plea. Oh, my God, it's in a production. We wanted to uh, we just found out we needed this shot. I don't have any money left. Will you blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, the first four or five times I had compassion after that, um, I didn't have as much compassion. Mm -hmm. And I also had competition who didn't have compassion either. So I just would quote the price I could actually afford to license it to mm -hmm. these people. Yeah. And fair enough. You shot the footage and, uh, and yeah. Uh, so, you know, so filmmakers budget in, uh, some money for a clip person and budget in money for archival. You may not use it and it, you know, you'll use it elsewhere then, mm -hmm. but, um, don't count on a, a facility, uh, a stock footage house, which makes their entire income from selling stock footage, don't count on them being compassionate. Very few of them are. Because mm -hmm. it's what they sell. And, yeah. You know, they, and, don't, they don't care. And they and they shouldn't because that's their product. And right. why would they, you know, you're not in business to give stuff away. 
And sometimes filmmakers are so used to, and I've seen this, are so used to getting things and stuff for free. Like, can you supply me a location for free? You know, can you, you know, especially when you're, when you're indie, you know, I'm talking, you know, minimal budget indie guys, not, not the big guys, but you see that. And so they suddenly think everything is free and stock footage is probably one of the best examples of something that you might assume is free, but uh, you do have to pay for much like music licensing. And it's still going to be much cheaper than if you had to hire crews and go and recreate that scene you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had to recreate a 1970s bedroom, um, you know, you're talking about the set and the dressings and the building of the set versus getting a established shot of a 1970s house from a uh, stock footage house. Uh, you know, you're talking one tenth the amount of money. And in the end of your book, of course, you're talking about the legal stuff. Um, and you, you have the uh, insurance examples of the of, of omissions insurance and errors and omissions, right? Errors and omissions. And um, do you have is that something you speak to a lawyer about or is that like a form you print out and just kind of how's that work? Here's how it works. Um, if a film is going to sell uh, you know, and be shown on television or on cable, um, most of the people will require that you have. Uh, coverage and insurance coverage that protects against lawsuits. It's called errors in omissions coverage. And it's very standard. Um, the way it works is you turn into them a script and you're supporting uh, paperwork that shows that you've cleared literally every second of what's on the screen. Mm-hmm. And they have a lawyer go through your script and your supporting material and they'll sit there and say, well, great job. Um, everything's covered and we'll give you the coverage. Or they may sit there and say, you know, uh, we notice you have a minute of uh, footage. We don't have anything supporting that you have legal right to use it. Can you supply us with that? And then, you know, if, if you just forgot to put it in, you put it in. If you need to get it, then you have to get it. But you cannot make a lot of sales to large markets without having errors and emissions insurance in place. And and that's something that I think many filmmakers also skip low budget filmmakers. And again, everything I'm talking about is more the low budget or no budget filmmaker. Uh, they tend to skip yeah, it's that. Not, part. It's not an expense you need to do during production. That's, you know, God forbid a lot of these films done by Indies don't get distributed. So why spend ENO if you're not yeah. going to get a buyer? So, you know, you know, but if you get a distributor and they make a sale, usually things go very quickly. So, mm-hmm. You're going to have to have everything in place. So when your distributor calls you up and says, we just sold uh, all of Europe. Um, they're planning on broadcasting it in three months. We need the ENO package in place in two to three weeks. That means you have to have it in place. You already have to have an ENO insurance broker already contacted. So you can call that person up and say, um, let's go. We're ready. And that person will do what needs to be done to get you uh, covered. Okay, perfect. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, can they do that? Of course. And how? Um, best way is my uh, personal email, uh, j underscore forsher at yahoo.com, j underscore f-o-r-s-h-e-r at yahoo.com. Uh, you can also look me up at my website, which is forsher productions, f-o-r-s-h-e-r, forsherproductions.com. Okay. And uh, there also is a website for the book called stockfootagethebook.com. Not very original, but there you go. (laughs) 
Yeah, but it's got to be easy, and that's easy. Stock footage, the book. Why not? Yeah. It, that's perfect. Is, have we touched upon everything? Is there anything else you want to add before we uh, wrap our interview? Well, you know, just um, leave it with uh, why indie filmmakers need this. I wrote this for indie filmmakers. I was an indie filmmaker. Um, I worked with a lot of indie filmmakers over the last 40 years. And this book is not just a a book that lets you understand how the business operates, but it also is a reference book. So mm-hmm. in a, you may read the book now and it only takes you two or three nights, but you know, a year from now, if you're needing a certain type of, of uh, stock material, you can look at the book and it'll tell you how to get it and where to get it. And so I think that's, to me, is why I wrote it and why I think it's pretty invaluable for most filmmakers. Yes, reference book is perfect. Uh perfect description of it. It's the kind of book that you, that you as a filmmaker should have on your bookshelf to go back to when you need it. You know, there's certain books that you read and other ones that are reference. Yeah. That's how I divide up my books. And this is definitely I, a I reference. I hope it's easy read, but you know, again, it's a chock full of information. Yes, absolutely. Well, this one you read, you learn about it and then you go back to it. It's kind of, it's kind of like that in between book, I guess, you know, it, because as I read it, I was actually surprised. Um, like, why didn't I think of that? You know, when you, when you see the the sources of it, you know, you you wouldn't, you know, I just wouldn't have thought of actual posters and postcards and finding old audio recordings and and you know and using from other TV shows or movies. So it kind of opened up my eyes to uh, the stock footage world a little bit more. I always thought it was just something you you know you go and buy these little clips off of some website and that's it, but. I, I'm not very creative, I guess, when I think well, of stock no, footage. It's, it's how you think about it. And uh, one thing to think about for all you filmmakers out there that have closets or your parents or grandparents have closets, and they're actually treasure troves. And what I mean by that is all this junk in boxes that no one looks at, uh, you go through it and you're going to find postcards. You're going to find pictures from different eras. You're going to find 8mm home movies or VHS home movies. And all that stuff is just packed away in people's closets and typically tossed. But what you may discover is you have gold in there in terms of your projects. Oh, right. You could use that in your, uh, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of the, the opening of the TV show, the wonder years. Remember how that was like on an eight millimeter. I don't know if you remember the TV show from totally. Remember it was like an eight millimeter, like a home movie is how it, I remember that in the opening somehow. So yeah, wow. <laughs> there you go. Like setting off light bulbs. You know, um, you're going to get people saying, oh, it looks old. Well, here's the thing. If you get a film uh, based material, like an eight millimeter or 16 millimeter, you can always get it uh, rescanned nowadays to 4k. And now we're going to 8k. Um, at a certain point, it it's counterproductive because you're, you know, you're blowing up scratches as, as wide as the screen. But on the other hand, you're getting a, a good, well-shot material. You're getting some incredible imagery that no one's seen. Um, Peter Jackson's new film where he took old, scratchy, black-and-white World War One footage and put it through you know, his same uh, digital design lab where they do all the uh, King Kong and Lord of the Rings. And suddenly, you, you're looking at World War One in a whole different way because it feels like you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be surprised at what you can do with what people call old material. Yeah. And it, it actually does, you know, people don't realize when you watch the old footage, you know, it didn't really look that way. You know, It, had, it looked real life. It, it was, was real life. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a country song like that. You should have seen it in color. I don't know if you ever heard that song. It yeah. comes to mind as you're talking, but um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Taking old footage and uh, again, would have never thought of that either. Um, now I'm, a, uh, I got a final warning for, for filmmakers. Yes. Um, I was watching a CNN hour special the other night um, about fashion with my wife and mm-hmm. I look at films, you know, um, from a from an archival perspective quite a bit. Cause, and there was a shot where uh, they were talking about the mid-50s, and they threw in a shot of a 1963-64 Chevy Nova. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the deal, filmmakers. Uh, for people that care about cars, this is a shot that was maybe almost 10 years after the period that they were really talking about in the script. Mm-hmm. And it matters. That's how people lose jobs. So if someone from the network who's over 50 years old watches and go, what the heck's going on there? Uh, that editor will never work for that producer again because they've embarrassed the producer. Uh, and that is a very common thing nowadays. People don't respect history and they go, you know, it looks old, fine. No, it's it doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to be accurate. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's a very simple thing, but if you don't know it, find someone that does. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, worst case scenario, show it to the film history teacher at the local college or whatever it takes. Uh, but don't put your reputation on the line because, you know, you have not visually learned historical references uh, over the past century. And how would you license like that stock footage if you found it in your grandparents' closet? Can you just use it or ask their permission and you're covered or is there more to it? Um, well, you know, if you found some great footage of, let's say, the, uh, the Seattle World's Fair from 1962 that your grandparents shot. Um, and if they're alive, just call them and just say, you know, any problem. And if I make any money, I'll give you some. They'll probably say money. Fine. Um, but, you know, at least get the permissions you need to get. Mm-hmm. Um what you want to avoid, and this is the back of the mind, is, you know, we have 800 million attorneys in this country. Mm-hmm. And they're all looking for a reason to make money. Um, and not to put them down, but that's just a reality. So he, what you're trying to avoid is a situation where someone is going to look at a piece of footage, anyone from anywhere, and say, wait, that's me in that footage. I don't like the way they're using it. And then they sue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned that lesson back in the mid-70s. I We did a... I was working for KNBC or public affairs programming at the time. And uh, we did a um, show about a, uh, a rabbi uh, magnet who was from Wilshire Boulevard Temple on Wilshire Boulevard. And he did a wedding in 1930 or 28 or 30, whatever. And they really nice home movie of, of the couple and of this very young rabbi. And we showed it in this local uh, public affairs show. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the rabbi gave it to us and there you go. Well, of course, Monday morning, the kids of this uh, couple that were married call up and threaten to sue. This was a professionally made movie. We didn't give you permission. How dare you? We're going to sue. And so the producer of the show came to me and said, well, did you get the family permission? And I said, no, I just was handed the film. And um, anyway, that was when I suddenly woke up and went, oh, it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you want to kind of. Look at a piece of film and just make sure you're doing your due diligence. 
at least give it a shot and try to contact people, cover your bases. Yeah, then people can't sue you for malice. Mm -hmm. If you're just going to say, well, I didn't know, then you're open for a malice uh, a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. If you really show that you made the effort and for whatever reason it didn't work out, then um, you can um, you know, settle for something, but malice is a lot more expensive. Yeah. Great advice, James. Awesome stuff. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to contact us and tell us what we should be talking about on our upcoming podcast, tweet us at BorgasFilm or email info at Borgas.com. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, leave us a star rating for us. I'll, I'll, I'll get right on that. I'll uh, I'll leave us. Well, no, not you. Oh, I thought you were t- telling me to do it. <laughs> well, he, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it though. But if anybody else who's listening would like to do that, we, we would love that too. Yes. So because we have Blondie in Florida, and we Blondie's we pr- pr- Blondie's probably like, will you guys <laughs> stop mentioning <laughs> yeah. me? I, I'm going to unsubscribe any day <laughs> now. Right. Uh, he's probably already subscribed. He or, or she. she. We, yeah, don't know. We, we don't know. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is created by Forrest Day Jr., also the host of Rolling Tape on YouTube. And Jeffrey Michael Bays, the author of Between the Scenes, what every film director, writer, and editor should know about scene transitions, and his latest book, Suspense with a Camera, a filmmaker's guide to Hitchcock's techniques. Bye, Blondie. Get Real Indie Bye. Filmmakers is a production of Borges Networks, 2019.